0: Good afternoon. Well, it was a really rough uh, Thursday right before staff meeting when Tom told us uh, he just got the news, quite a shock to the family. And so they f- flew out to uh, Arkansas to try and sort things out and figure out what happened. And so please keep him in prayer. That's uh, just a devastating situation. And so we're thankful for you joining us in prayer for that. Um, this morning, did you guys wake up today? I mean, this morning was the dead of winter Oh my goodness, I barely survived getting out of my house this morning. I've lost all ability to deal with cold temperatures now. Today it's summer, now this afternoon, but it was freezing this morning. That was the middle of our winter. Um, We're finishing up Win the War in Your Mind, that series today. The next two weeks will be in the Psalms before starting something regarding Christmas. And so last week we talked about four lies that are commonly believed and then tried to show the truth. For those lies that we so we could confront them we reminded ourselves that the enemy of our soul Satan he is trying to convince us that God is not good that God is not strong and that God is not trustworthy and so we we've got to discover what the truth is about our lives rather than just believing the lies of the enemy there's something I saw on social media this week that There was a Wharton associate professor that, um, his name's Ethan Mollick, and he's like, if you are on social media, you have to read this. And he was talking about uh, research for this thing called the illusory truth effect. And he says, research indicates if you see something repeated enough times, it seems more true. Multiple studies show that it works on 85% of people. Worse, it still happens even if the information isn't plausible and you know better. The paper shows it works just after five repetitions for obviously false statements like, George Washington was actually born in China, or elephants are faster than cheetahs. And people seeing this five times in a row are thinking, well, maybe I'm missing something. I keep seeing this around. And the only way that you can protect yourself from the illusory truth effect is to train yourself to check every fact the first time you hear it. Then you're able to kind of get past some of these lies. Now, he noted that 600,000 plus people looked at that post. They saw it, but only 535 clicked on the research. He's like, I'm writing about fact-checking and everyone just chose to believe me rather than click on the research and actually go for it. Last week, we talked about when you think it, when you hear it or you see it, before you believe it, you should check it. And for the believer, checking it is with the Word of God and by asking a a Christian mentor, right? The Bible says there's safety in the multitude of counselors. And so it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter two, verse eight says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ." Paul's saying that we've gotta be careful, right? If we're not careful, we'll be, we'll be taken captive by deceit, even if it's hollow, even if it seems like we shouldn't believe this, but we, we will if we're not careful. And these thoughts come from three places, according to this scripture. Human tradition, so sometimes just what other people are believing around us, we assume is true, and so we believe it. Or elemental spiritual forces of this world, so a demonic nature to these thoughts. Or Christ. We have to choose our foundation, our source of truth. Is it gonna be human traditions, what other people are believing? Is it gonna be the demonic realm because it feels a little supernatural? Or what Christ is saying is he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have to check it with the word. So today we're gonna look at three more commonly believed lies, how they impact our lives, and then the truth that we can confront those lies with. And the first lie is this, it's not okay to be human and make mistakes. If we're honest, we believe this sometimes because of how we treat ourselves after we make a mistake, right? Have you ever felt like an idiot because you made a mistake? All different kinds of categories, right? You're like, I had this project at work, but I messed up. I made a mistake. You know, I'm such a, I'm such a fool. Maybe it's with an investment we're like, all right, we're gonna do amazing. There goes all the, the family money in this investment. Maybe it's in driving and you made a mistake and you'll be literally paying for it for the next five years with, with higher insurance. Or it could be parenting. Parenting in the moment, you just feel like you're winging it and you're like, all right, I think this is right. And then almost as soon as you're done parenting or disciplining a child, you realize, oh my goodness, that was a mistake. What, if I, what have I done? I think back to four years ago when my daughter was giving us a hard time, she was in the wrong, but she just wouldn't yield and agree to that. And so finally I was like, you know what? I'm taking the toys out of your room. So I'm lugging all the toys out of her room, putting them in our room, had no idea where I was going to put them. And, and she's crying and Shannon's just consoling her. But she kept on being snarky and sarcastic with me. And so finally, I went back into the room. and said, you know what else, Abigail? I'm taking all the pink off the wall, all the pink. It's mine. I'm taking it. And Shannon rolls her eyes at me while she's rubbing Abigail. Abigail's sobbing. He's taking the pink, you know. And Shannon's rubbing her back and giving me a dirty look. And I realized I, ma- I made a mistake. <laughs> I think I crossed the line there. I have no way to even take the pink off of her wall. You know, you think, man, the the fact that I make mistakes is proof that I'm a fool. As I wrote that sentence, I realized on, on Monday that I had, there was one day this week, I didn't have my computer with me and I'm not driving back home. And so I worked all day on paper and I was making other people print things for me and I was just working on paper and I carved out the entire 2023 sermon calendar on paper, put it in my bag, and I realized as I wrote the sentence about making mistakes and feeling like an idiot, that earlier that morning, I took that paper out, thought it was an old sermon and threw it away. And I was like, oh, you idiot. (laughs) Like, I was like, what am I gonna do? And and I was actually able to retrieve it from the trash. And so if all the sermons next year have a fruity kind of a, a smell to them, it's because of that. But man, it was, what a dumb thing. I was able to recover it, but I felt so stupid. Here's the truth. Only God is perfect, and all humans make mistakes, whether we like it or not, about us and about other people. Psalms 1830 says this, as for God, His way is perfect. He is the only perfect one. But we should take comfort in that. We want to be perfect. We can't, but we should take comfort in the fact that that God is perfect. He's perfect in His goodness towards us. We don't have to wonder whether He's going to be unfair or mean towards us. No, He's perfect in His goodness towards us. He's perfect in His power towards us. Man, an all-powerful being, yeah, but He's perfect in how He uses that power. He's perfect in His mercy and compassion to forgive us, and He's even perfect with the provision He allows us to have, and His timing is perfect. We can take comfort of the fact that God is perfect, even though we are not. All that failing and making mistakes really proves is that despite our best efforts, we're going to continue to mess up. And we just have to accept that. But it's hard to accept being human, right? We want to do better. We want to nail it and just do it perfectly. And we're going to make mistakes. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is a sinner. Uh, a key fact that my children like to remind me of when I'm disciplining them, right? Even when I'm keeping my voice down and not raising it, and it's just like an appropriate discipline. They're like, well, you know, Dad, all people are sinners. I'm like, don't you throw the Bible in my face, you little pastor kid. I know that, I know that verse, you know, you're trying to manipulate me with the scriptures here. And they're right though. And so Shannon and I, when we close out the, the evenings and we ask the kids, okay, tell us the best thing that happened today maybe a few best things that happened, and and what's the worst thing that happened today? And we use that to thank God for the best things that happen, whether they're desserts they got to eat or something else. And then whatever the worst thing is, we we bring that to the Lord in prayer, whether it's a hurt feeling or a time where they rebelled against God and sinned or hurt the family, We, we confess those things. But Shannon and I don't just limit that to the three kids right? We then take a turn and say, here's where we sinned today. We desperately want our kids to know you don't grow out of sinning. You can mature and grow in your relationship with the Lord, and there are preventable mistakes, and you don't have to choose to rebel against the Lord, but they need to know that when they're older, they're going to keep sinning and continue to confess that before the Lord. Otherwise, they're going to get older And when they realize they they can't not sin, they're gonna feel broken and think, I can't do this Christianity thing. We want them to know, no, we are sinners as well. I just don't want my daughter to tell me I'm a sinner, but I want her to know that I'm a sinner, but she can't tell me that, all right? It's It's a nuance. Listen, everyone makes two categories of mistakes. Practical mistakes. We just mess up at work or in something, and it's just a practical mistake, and we're not perfect. We can't even not do that at times. But then there's also spiritual mistakes. This is what we call sin rebellion against God, right? These are the categories we, we make mistakes in, but when it comes to the spiritual ones, the Bible isn't saying we fall a tiny bit short of the glory of God. Oh, Andy, almost, Andy you're almost perfect like Jesus. Not at all, right? We, we fall impressively short against God, right? We are closer to opposites than we are towards likeness of the Lord. I remember watching a video a few weeks ago of an NBA player taking a free throw shot all by himself. And the ball just went four feet in front of him and fell. And everyone just kind of looked at him and they're like, man, that was impressively horrible. And that's more of our category. I I, I take a jump shot once in a while in the middle of a basketball game. And it's so off that what do I feel I have to say? That was a pass. It was a pass. I was not a shot because it looked nothing like a shot. Well, sometimes it looks like Nothing like following the Lord is a better description of how we're doing. But that doesn't mean that life is over and we give up. No, for the believer that the Spirit of God dwells in, we continue to fall and get up and say, Lord, I'm so sorry, and we push on in our relationship with God. It's in Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, also the verse at the bottom of the French fry container at in and out They hide this little verse there, true story. It says this, Though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. The life of the believer is that we sin against the Lord, but instead of saying, well, I wasn't perfect, I give up. And turning our back on the Lord, we we confess our sins to God. And we say, no, only Jesus is perfect. Our relationship with God is not based on our perfection, but on the perfection of Jesus. He's the only one that was ever perfect and the only one that ever will be perfect. And so when we face God, when we face the Father one day, the only reason we're let in, you could say, and we have a right relationship with God now is because Jesus takes His robe of righteousness and puts it around us. He spilled His perfect blood for us. We don't have to earn that relationship with God. It was all because of the perfection of Jesus that we have it at all. But how do we keep rising, right? It says, the righteous fall seven times. Yesterday, Abigail was at a, um, a roller skating party right by our house. And she, she went into it really confident because she got some roller skates for her birthday or Christmas last year. So she was pretty confident. But we know we haven't been skating a lot. And so I picked her up. How hey, would you have a good time? We had a great time. How'd you do? And she goes, well, I fell 10 times. And that surprised me. But I had a lot of fun. And someone else fell 11 times, so I'm OK. And I was thinking about this verse and I said, you know, the Bible says the righteous falls seven times and yet rise again, so you're super righteous. You fell 10 times, you're very, and she, she rolled her eyes and gave me the combo dad joke, pastor joke, which is the horrible world she lives in. And she didn't appreciate it. How do we keep rising? Well, if it's a practical mistake that we've made, we just have to accept that. We have to accept that we are human. We will not be perfect. We will continue to do the best we can and that's okay. And God accepts that about us. He knows that we're going to make practical mistakes. Other people might not accept that about us, but that's on them. They're human, and they make their own mistakes as well. But if it's a spiritual mistake, sin, we respond by repenting of our sins. We confess it, and we say, Lord, it's only because of you that I am able to even stand before you. Help me next time. And we just try again in the Lord's strength. And whether or not we repeat that same category of of sin or not, who knows? but we know we are only covered because of the blood of Jesus. And so it's only possible with the Lord's help for us to not fall like this. In Psalm 37, it says, the Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall for the Lord upholds him with his hand. So the Lord is the one that's going to make firm our steps, those that delight in him. It's a work that God is going to do. He's going to help us with our mistakes. And he does that a few different ways. One of the ways God does that is through instructing us in his word. There are some preventable mistakes. And as we read the scriptures, we realize how perfect his law is. And we we aim in that direction in God's strength. And so instruction helps. Yesterday, there was uh, 40 people from Cornerstone that joined my family uh, hiking through Joshua Tree National Park. We had a great time. Beautiful weather. It was amazing. What's amazing about this park is that there's just boulders stacked on boulders, and they're, they're rough, and so they're easy to climb without slipping. And so kids love it because you can climb one boulder to the next boulder, and you can only ever fall one boulder's length for the most part. And so the rules that I gave them, the instruction to keep them safe was, I know you just wanna disappear into the boulders. Forget about the snakes. Let's just assume they're sleeping today. I can't really fix that problem, but only climb the small boulders. Climb as many small boulders as you want, but only a small boulder, because the big boulders oftentimes have a cliff on the other side of them. And when you get to the top, turn around and wave, but don't go over the other side because I have no idea what's there. We gave them instructions, and thank God none of the kids got hurt because they were having a blast but they had their boundaries. And the Lord does that with us with the scriptures as well. Psalm 37 also says, He will not fall, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. There's sometimes where the Lord just holds on to us. I don't know what it was, but on Friday evening, we were at the San Diego Zoo. And there's this cool rock-like area by the foxes they built a a year or two ago that's really awesome and it made Gideon want to climb it. And so I turn around and Gideon's on top of all these rock structures. They're not intended to be climbed at all. And so I'm like, Gideon, I'm not surprised, but you got to get down. And as he's starting to get down, he's about, I don't know, 10 or, 10 or 12 feet up. And he just slips and comes falling straight down. Now, it was that like weird soft ground stuff. So he would have been OK. But as he's falling, I just reached under his arm and just let him, let him kind of hit a little softer. And he got up and he goes, all right. And I was like, come on, man. you got to give me some credit here. You're like, you would have been a lot more hurt besides of that. And that's what the Lord does with us. There are times where we should say, man, that should have been the end of me. But the Lord is helping me. The Lord is sending His angels. The Lord is upholding me. The Lord is helping me bounce back from that mistake that I made, and God is going to continue to do that. And so God helps us in many different ways, but when we have unrealistically high standards, when we just think we can be perfect, we are guaranteeing ourselves a life of stress and anxiety. it's a guarantee, why would we do that? We've created an environment where we can't win because we aren't going to be perfect. Now you may say, that's great, Andy, but some people I want to be perfect, like airline pilots when I'm on the plane, I want them to be, to be perfect. Yet we should aim for doing the best we can, especially when there's a safety thing going on here. But the question is, are you a perfectionist? What does that even look like? Well, Dr. David Burns, a leading expert on this said this. He says, I don't mean the healthy pursuit of excellence, by men and women who genuinely take pleasure in striving to meet high standards. Without concern for quality, life would seem shallow and true accomplishments would be rare. The perfectionists I am talking about are those whose standards are high beyond reach or reason, people who strain compulsively and unremittently toward impossible goals and who measure their own worth entirely in terms of productivity and accomplishment. That, that is going to set you up for discouragement as we naturally fail. Aim for the high standard. Do better than you did the last time. But as we find our worth and our value in perfection, we can't because only Jesus is perfect. And so we have to stop trying to be what we aren't, perfect. That's the category of Jesus, not humans. And start acknowledging what our category is, which is we are imperfect, but we have a forgiving and loving God who's going to help us as we make these mistakes. Jesus encountered somebody in the Gospels who desperately wanted to be perfect. He he wanted to be so perfect that, that he could guarantee by his following of the law, he would enter into heaven. He was rich. And so Jesus, you know, thinking through how he could help this man said this, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. For that rich man, his security was in his finances, that he had made perfect decisions regarding his investments and his finances. And so he thought, what could really go wrong when I have this much money? That was a barrier to him relying on God himself. And so Jesus says, hey, remove that barrier. Whatever your barrier is between you and and, and the Lord, if you think you have security in anything besides God's goodness, then you're wrong. He says, if you want perfection, you want to guarantee that you'll be in heaven, follow me. Jesus was perfect. As we follow him, we don't have to rely on our perfection that is unattainable, but on his perfection, his goodness, his substitution for us on the cross. And so sometimes we would just believe this lie. Another lie that we tend to believe is if our marriage takes hard work, then we must not be right for each other. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so hard? I mean, it's supposed to be you fall in love, you marry, you live happily ever after. It's kind of like a fairy tale ending, not necessarily in the marriage handbook, but the reality of life sets in and some people think, man, I'm going to live miserably ever after. Why is this so difficult? It shouldn't be this hard. And the moment marriage isn't smooth, couples begin to wonder, are we right for each other? Well, the truth is somewhere in between those different extremes. The truth is, marriage doesn't come easy, and it requires work. Scriptures bear witness to this. Paul, in a chapter where he really is talking about how amazing singleness is, and he's like, man, being single can be a sweet season. It can be a powerful season. It can be a gift from God. He says this about marriage, 1 Corinthians seven twenty-eight. Those who marry will face many troubles in life. It just says it right there. Hey, you're going to encounter difficulties in marriage. It doesn't mean you shouldn't get married, but you need to recognize this is true so you're ready to work at it. A loving, healthy, happy marriage is made up of two imperfect people that are living together, trying to glorify God. The goal isn't happiness or convenience or comfort. It's it's glorifying God. God brought us together for a reason. And we do this through deserved and undeserved sacrificial love and service towards each other. By deserved, I mean, you made a covenant with this other person that you married. If anyone deserves to be given the benefit of the doubt, mercy, forgiveness, and love, isn't it the person that you swore would be the main other person in your life? Of course, that person deserves your love. But also, that same person is undeserving because they are a sinner who is going to be unfair and harsh towards you in a way where they don't deserve in that moment for you to show them love and mercy. But you should still do that. Deserved and undeserved love and service. So Peter didn't write this next verse in the context of marriage, but it applies in all situations. He says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sin. Right, what a a blessing to be able to be harmed by someone and to say, me and the lord are doing good they're having a bad day i don't even need to bring it up i'm going to let love cover this sin and trust the lord will convict them as necessary we don't allow love to cover sin in a way that enables somebody in a lifestyle or a pattern of sin that's just adding to the problem even though it feels like love we don't let love cover up something shady that needs to be exposed right but aren't there times where you just don't have to mention your grievance with your spouse because you love them and love can cover it. I'm convinced the only reason anyone thinks that I have a good marriage is because my wife has memorized this verse and very often she's just like, and she just lets love cover it. And I kind of, I'm worried at the end of the night, I'm like, she's gonna bring it up. She's gonna bring up that I'm a jerk, you know? And then she does it, I'm like, oh my goodness, right? And, and then I feel so convicted that she's so kind, she didn't even bring it up and I apologize. And um, oh my, that's, that's why we have a good marriage, I think. But I'm working on it. Doesn't mean I should be lazy. I need to work on myself here. Listen, difficulty in our marriage, it often reveals our own personal characteristics are lacking or broken and gives us an opportunity to work on them. That's why we discover this in marriage. When you have friends and they bother you or they hurt you, sometimes you're like, I'm just not even going to talk to them for a few weeks. And then things just, you know, you don't, you not really fix anything, but you also, yeah, you're fine. You can hang out again. You can't walk away for three weeks when you're married. And so I I really thought I was a nice person until I got married. I'm like, I'm a nice guy. Because whenever there was a problem, I'll just walk away and no big deal. Well, you can't do that in marriage. And so Shannon and I only had one fight before we got married. Now it helps when you live on different sides of the country and you're only seeing each other every two weeks, you know. Uh, know, I, I met her and gave her a ring six weeks later. We got married six months after that. So the first four months we were married, I was like, I didn't even know you existed a year ago today. And it was great getting to know her. But then she got to know me. <laughs> and I wasn't being deceitful when I was dating her. It's just that we had no opportunity for her to see. I wasn't as nice as she thought. And there was one time in New Jersey, we were driving. It was 15 years ago. We were driving on White Oak Lane. I know exactly where we were on the street because there was some kind of miscommunication that led to an argument where both of us felt we were right. I was obviously right. She was wrong. But She's not here. third service. Right? So, no, listen, I was wrong in how I was handling it. And so there came a moment where she just says, huh? I said, like, What kind of a passive aggressive noise was that? What do you mean by huh? You know, and she goes, No, I'm, no i do not mean, it. I just I just realized you really are different than Jesus. And I'm like, Oh, what are you? And she like stabbed the knife in and turned it. She wasn't trying to hurt me. She actually just realized at that moment. It's not going to be Jesus and Andy that both don't let me down. It's only going to be Jesus that is perfect and doesn't let me down. And boy, that hurt to have her realize that it's true and it would've happened at some point, but she realized, you know, even this man who loves me and says he loves me, he's gonna be harsh to me at times and Jesus will be the only one that is perfect towards me. I realized that about me in marriage. Listen, think of someone's marriage that you respect. Like, oh, I just, I love their marriage. I hope we can have a marriage that lasts that long and is, is like that. Any healthy and ha- happy marriage that you're thinking about has had intentional work done within it. Just ask them. They must be intentional in working on their marriage. It does not just happen by default. And so how do you work on your marriage? Well, a consistent date night is always crucial, even in the good seasons, not just to repair something that's broken. Shannon and I are being super cheap about it right now. We've got Friday morning date night because the kids are in school, so I don't have to pay for a babysitter. We go grab a coffee. It's super cheap, which is very romantic, I hear. All right, write it down. Listen, there's that. There's, uh, there's great books. I love the book, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Fantastic. Uh, everyone here has access to Right Now Media. There are dozens of Bible studies for couples where you can just say one night a week before we watch Netflix, we're just gonna watch one of these. It's an eight to 10 minute video. And then we're just gonna talk and say, hey, so what do you think? And it's uncomfortable and vulnerable to hear someone describe marriage and you realize you're not living up to it, but it gives you a chance to talk on it and work on it. And even on Instagram, there's some really good Christian marriage strengthening accounts that now, now it's not just you know, friends and family photos that are popping up, but, but there's all this good advice popping up about marriage and challenges about, about marriage that are good to have in my, my feed. And then there's your, your wedding anniversary. Use that as a reminder to work on your marriage. We wanna work on it more than once a year, but why not every wedding anniversary say, okay, we're buying a book to read together. We're going to a marriage conference together right? We're going to watch one of these, uh, you know, right now media videos for the next few weeks together. And the wedding anniversary reminds you to do that. And the final lie I want to talk about today is one that feels so true because there's a part truth to this one, but it's that no one understands me. Now it's partly true because one of the worst things we can say to each other when, when you're trying to help someone else who's going through a difficult time is, I know how you feel. You know, you don't, we don't know how each other feels. We may have gone through something similar, and that can be helpful in the conversation, but we don't fully understand their unique situation. And so it's true in in, in that way, but it's not true in the sense that we think no one understands me, so I shouldn't be at church because they must be judging me because they don't understand what I'm going through. Or we, we can't relate to each other because they haven't gone through this or they're not feeling this way. That part of it is not true we have these thoughts of saying you don't know what i've been through you don't know who i've been married to you don't know who my boss has been you don't know what i'm tempted to do you don't know what i believe about my own sexuality and gender you don't know that you haven't been through a tragedy like this you haven't been raised like this and it affects you in a certain way we think no one understands me the danger of this thinking is the enemy is trying to isolate you so he can pick you off so you believe this, and you go from one church to another, never finding the perfect church. And then eventually you stop, and the enemy's got you. And that's what, that's what it felt like for me at New York University when I was just partying like crazy but grew up in the church. And eventually the enemy just whispers, why are you going to that church on 56th Street in Manhattan every week when four nights a week you're out partying so hard it's just against everything you believe? I'm like, you're right. That is a little hypocritical. And I'm going to do that next week. So why go to church? And I stopped going. And then it's like, well, why are you even praying? You're still praying at night, but you just got home. You still smell drunk. You're going to do that again. Why are you even praying? Like, you're right. I guess I shouldn't even pray. And I believe the lie of the enemy that God doesn't, God doesn't want to talk to me. No, God wants me to be around him. Other people in the church would be able to relate to me. And I shouldn't stop pursuing the Lord. The truth is Jesus understands you. That's the truth. Jesus can understand your temptation, even though he was perfect. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Maybe Jesus wasn't tempted in the modern way, exactly the same as you were, but he was tempted categorically in the same way. The same categories that you're tempted with, Jesus faced those saw the lore of those and then said no to them. The truth is that all citizens of the kingdom have been asked to yield to the king. The lie is, oh, well, the whole church is against me and people like me. No, every follower of Jesus has to feel a desire that is sinful and say no to it. And we all do that in many different categories. The Bible and the church are not against any particular people. It's against sinfulness, which is in all humans. Jesus can also relate to our pain. In Isaiah 53, it says something pretty shocking. It says, speaking of the coming Messiah, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by man, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. We understand the last part of that on the cross, Jesus being despised, rejected, you know, familiar with pain. Yeah, he went through that. But did you know the Bible makes it pretty clear Jesus wasn't handsome? Jesus wasn't good looking? You know, sometimes we feel bad about how we look physically. Jesus didn't look in his reflection in, in the lake and then say, wow, I'm a savior and I'm a handsome savior. Not too bad. I mean, I mean, if you could choose your own body and stuff, if you're going to be God, becoming human. No, Jesus chose at least a plain face, maybe even an ugly face, according to cultural standards. Isn't that wild? Jesus can fully relate to how we're feeling, even our appearances. I tease people sometimes when people are talking about like, oh, what's, one?" there's like always a horrible question in like a list of a box full of questions to get to know people. One of them is always this horrible question of like, if you could change one thing about your appearance, what would it be? You're like, what, what, where do you expect this conversation to go that isn't just depressing, Right. But I always jokingly answer, oh, when I was in high school, I stapled my earlobes up because they're so big. And somebody in the group's like, oh, I feel, oh, you just feel, they feel so bad for me. And I'm like, I, I didn't do that. I mean, I do have big earlobes. I could glide to the back of the room easily like Dumbo. I mean, no problem. But listen, Jesus can relate to even that we don't like how we look. We follow a savior that suffered on the cross and didn't even give, it, give himself a competitive advantage, you could say. Jesus knows our pain, our hurt, our loneliness, our rejection, our injustice. And maybe you say, fine, Jesus can understand me, but the church can't. Maybe you at least concede to that point. And you think, I just don't fit in in the church. When I look around, people are too different. They don't know what's going on in my mind. There's no way I fit here. That's just not true when god created the church he took two opposing cultures jews and gentiles and brought them together and said this new thing is called a church it wasn't the gentiles had to become jewish or the jews had, no everyone was brought into this new thing called the church the, the the jews and the gentiles hated each other they hurt each other but they had to live with each other and learn to love each other because they had a common ground that Jesus shed his own blood to cover their sins. And if God wanted to die for the people that I thought were too different than me, then who am I to say there should be any distance between us? And so it's just not true that the church can't understand you. Our goal should be unity, and we want to understand it, even if you don't think we can. Also, the the church, the honest definition of the church is we're more like a hospital than anything else. We are full of sick people that know that we can't do it and we need God if we're going to make it. That's a description of us. Jesus said in Matthew 9, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So if you've recognized, no matter how you've come here, if you've recognized your need for God, then you're welcome here. But if you're here in the church and you have forgotten your need for God, you're wrong. And sometimes it's those that feel so righteous that start acting self-righteous and become really judgy with the people around them that cause people to think, no one understands me in the church. Right now, the church is a level playing field. We're all a mess. We're all seeking Jesus. We're all trying, you know, to follow Him and we need His forgiveness and Jesus is perfect, that's the only difference. We're all on the same playing field here. And so with any of these lies, we have to remember, God is good, God is strong, and God is trustworthy. So maybe it's one of these three lies and not the lies from last week that you're most tempted to believe. Then the challenge again this week is to identify it, consider how it negatively impacts your life, search the scripture for truth, and then tell a mentor, tell your life group or your discipleship group, and ask them for prayer for you to believe the truth that is in God's word above any of the lies that we feel. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back out and lead, lead us in a closing song so that we have time for a prayer team to be available. Another lie you may be feeling right now is, oh, I don't need to go down there and pray with someone. Well, yeah, you don't, you don't need to. Because Jesus is your mediator and you can go directly to God and you don't need to go to other people to receive prayer. But then why does the Bible tell us that we should go to other people? We should confess our sins one to another. We should live in a community. We should bear each other's burdens. It's because part of our healing is going to be found in this community and in our personal relationship with God. And so I challenge you. If there's something in the series of anxiety or lies that we've been talking about that you want to bring before the Lord, then as we worship, come forward so we can pray for you. But Father, pray that you would give the boldness, Lord. Nobody needs to feel guilted into coming forward if that's not what you're doing in, in their heart, Lord. But if that word is for anyone here, then Lord, may they feel free to come forward knowing we are, we are all at fault. We are all making mistakes. We all need to be helping each other in prayer. And that's one of the beautiful things of the church is that we encourage one another. And so, Lord, we need your help with all of these lies. We ask that you would help us, that you would speak to us, Lord. You give different spiritual gifts to different people in the local body of Christ and so it may be that coming forward is is that this is the opportunity for you to speak through one of your people towards someone else we want to allow for that opportunity God and so Lord we're so thankful that that you are good you are perfect and that your word is true and we can follow after you and so we just commit this time to you in Jesus name amen would you please stand with me as we worship the Lord